from Kurtco Media. I certainly do think that there will be more cars that we'll look back on and we'll say that was the car that really launched this movement. It might be more like the propulsion technology, electric or even self-driving, but there are definitely still shifts to come in the auto industry and in what we drive. I definitely think that it's going to be an exciting next century of cars. This is Cars That Matter. Robert Ross, and welcome to another episode of Cars That Matter. Today, we're joined by Dr. Curtis Saunders, mechanical engineer researcher at Johns Hopkins University. How are things in Baltimore today, Curtis? They're great, Robert. It's a beautiful, sunny day here. And Curtis is here because he's the owner of a 1914 Ford Model T. Now, I guess I could make all kinds of jokes, Curtis, about how you really need a PhD in mechanical engineering to work on one of these, but I'm sure it doesn't hurt. It's true. It's true. First, we're going to dig into the history of the Ford Model T just to understand a little bit better why it was such an important automobile. The Ford Model T is often named the car of the century. Obviously, it's an important car. Why is it important to you? I should say, while I'm a mechanical engineer, I've always loved history. I've always been a student of history, and history has always been a passion of mine. So the Model T, it's important to me. One of the reasons is just the impact it had on American history and just the auto in general. Uh, in addition just to manufacturing in general, the manufacturing methods behind the Model T, some of the things that Henry Ford really pioneered with the car. I was just really fascinating how it had in areas, as well as the impact the car itself had in American culture. From what I understand, they made about 15 million and they had quite a lifespan. The first one came out in 1908, is that right? Yes, that is correct. Kind of wrapped things up by 1927 when by that time it was almost as much of an antique as it is today. It's amazing how long the car ran and even through its cycle while the appearance of the car changed, a lot of the underlying mechanical structure, while it had some changes, it remained basically the same, the same four-cylinder engine, the same two-speed transmission. The bones of the car really did run 20 years. I remember years and years ago in my former life, I worked with the operating engineers at UCLA and we'd have these emergency generator rooms. Now, UCLA campus was built back in the 1920s and we actually had an emergency generator that was still powered by a Model T engine. This is back in the 80s. Imagine that. That old engine was deemed reliable enough and competent enough to be working all those decades later. And I guess it's really testament to the endurance of that particular design. You talk about Henry Ford and how the Model T was really the first mass-produced car, but I almost get the feeling Henry could have been making washing machines or, or vacuum cleaners. In a lot of ways, the Model T was sort of a test bed for the whole production line process. You're absolutely right. The moving assembly line process was not unique to Model Ts. It's been applied to so many different types of products from airplanes trains, cars, like you said, household goods, washing machines, TVs, just the idea of that type of process. We take it for granted now, but someone had to think of it first and there had to be a pioneer that, and a type of industry that really started this whole thing. Not only introducing a whole new way of making things, it was done so efficiently and relatively inexpensively that it gave any American with a halfway decent paying job the opportunity to own a car. Ford's heyday, he was rolling a car off the assembly line every 90 seconds. From what I understand, though, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Model T was such a grand vision of Henry Ford's that he actually set up manufacturing facilities or plants all around the country and even in other continents. 
he truly believed it was the car for the masses. I don't think he really viewed it as just something for a specific region or even a specific country or a specific time. He thought he'd really distill down the essential components of a vehicle and that that's what anyone in the world would want. I guess there was more than just one Model T. Everything from pickup trucks to delivery vans, they made a whole bunch of them, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. There was various types of cars from two-seaters to four-seaters to even enclosed cars and open cars later. And right, they had a whole line of trucks. You could even buy a Model T rolling chassis and build your own body for it. If you didn't like what Ford was offering, you could just build your own. You're not even limited to cars. Like you said, the power plant. You could just buy the Ford engine, the Ford power plant, and just have all sorts of other applications. That would make a nice margarita blender, wouldn't it? Just about the right <laughs> amount of horsepower to get that ice just just right. Everybody knows what one looks like, but I suspect most people don't really understand what it takes to make one move. It's got a little engine. What is it like a three liter inline four or something like that? It's a little inline four and it has a two speed transmission. What's the horsepower output on that engine? Would you figure? It was rated at 22 and a half horsepower. Wow. Okay. So well. there's a lot of lawnmowers today. You can buy a riding mower from a hardware store that has more horsepower than this little Model T. You look at a car today and you look at an old Model T, and it's the difference between chalk and cheese. We take so many darn things for granted. I guess the first thing we take for granted is just being able to put a key in the ignition and start it, or these days, walk to the car and press a button. Back then, you had to get out and crank. And as I understand, it wasn't until 1912 that Cadillac introduced an electric starter. When did the Model T get a starter motor? The Model T got an electric start in 1919. Other stuff that you don't think about. What about driving at night? People had lanterns. Didn't these things have acetylene lanterns or something on them? Yes, acetylene lanterns and then oil side lamps, oil marker lights for the side. Driving at night wasn't just a matter of turning your lights on. What do you have to do? Take us through the process. You got these acetylene. Do you like blow your head off like Coyote in the Roadrunner car? <laughs> Tune, or is this stuff safe? It's safe. They have to be careful. It's a flammable gas. So first you have to generate the acetylene gas. So the cars have a little acetylene generator on the running board and it's basically a tank of water. And below that is some calcium carbide rock that you would put in. And you have a little needle valve and the water drips onto the rock. Sounds like you're setting up an execution in a gas chamber. What are you doing? Yeah, had a little chemistry experiment right on the running board there. That's uh, awesome. It runs for a while to build up gas pressure, and then the gas is piped to the two headlights. And then at some point, when the gas is flowing, you light a match, and that's how you light your headlights. You can control the valve and the flow of the gas a little bit to make them slightly brighter and dimmer. But in general, what they are is what they are. I'm fascinated. That's great. And guess what? We haven't even put it in first gear. First of all, I'm confused, man. There are three pedals in this thing, and not like the three pedals we have at our manual cars today. How do you drive it? Set us behind the wheel and take us on a drive. So when you're sitting in the driver's seat, you'll notice three pedals. The left one is labeled clutch. The middle one is reverse. And the one on the far right is brake. And then on the steering wheel, there's two different levers, one on the left and one on the right. On your dashboard, you do have a key. And on the far side, you have a little needle valve, a little rod to a needle valve. And these are all things you need to adjust to get the car started and running. I've already crashed. I can't manage that many things. It's like being an octopus on a drum kit. How do you learn this? What do you do first? The first thing that you do is you turn the key to on, but that doesn't start the car. That just sends the ignition. There's a little battery in the car, so that sends the spark to the spark plug, basically. And then you put the lever on the far left. That's the spark, so that controls the timing sequence when the spark plug fires to where the piston is in the cylinder. So you put that all the way up to have it fire later. And that's where people would normally have backfires and issues with the crank spinning around and breaking their arm is the ignition would be too far advanced. So you put the left lever up, which is the spark. You put the throttle a little bit down, keys on on. There's a little needle valve 
on the dashboard. You have it a turn and a half open that controls the fuel air mixture in the carburetor. You, know, you make sure the parking brake is set to on. These are all things you need to do before the car will even start. So I take it all back. You really do have to be a PhD. Do not worry about it being stolen. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, are these things reliable? Absolutely. They are very reliable. They're just so simple. It's just a very simple car. There's very few moving parts, and the tolerances are, in general, a lot laxer than the modern tolerances we have for engines. So even if some things break on it, in general, it can keep running. You know, things can be pretty far out of spec for this car to run. It might not run well, but it will run. It might be blowing a quart of oil every two blocks, but... But it's running. What about stopping? Do they have anything for brakes, or do you have to be Fred Flintstone? You basically have to be Fred Flintstone with this car. It does have a brake. There's just a single drum on the transmission, and you have a band which has some treated cotton on it. When you push the brake pedal, it just kind of clamps down on the drum. And then the friction between those is what slows your car. There's not even drum brakes on the four wheels or disc brakes. It's just a single drum on the transmission. Cotton-like fabric for a brake? Yes, but Ford actually advertised that as a feature in the car because the brake drum was inside the transmission. So he described it as the car would stop the same whether it was wet or dry. Other cars had these treated cotton bands around a drum as well, but it wasn't enclosed in the transmission. So if it was wet out or grimy, you might have reduced clamping power. So is truly awesome stuff that we don't even think about. Let's talk numbers. How fast does it go? I mean, how fast do you drive this thing? The 1914s didn't come with the speedometer. That was not a standard thing. So a lot of my speeds are guessed. I put like a GPS on there sometimes, though, to get an idea. And I'd say mine cruises about 35, 40 miles an hour. Yeah, sounds perfect. You can go faster, but the wheels aren't balanced. It still has its original brakes. So it gets harder to stop and harder to control at the faster speed. So 35 to 40 is good for cruising, though it only has two gears. So it really does not like going uphill. They really would love a third gear when it goes up a hill. Well, I guess that's what a passenger's for, to get out and push, huh? How many people fit inside that thing? Mine's a touring car, so it's a front and rear seat. And it will comfortably fit two in the front, two in the back. You can squeeze three adults in the back. You can have people standing on the running boards, I suppose, if you wanted to add more. But I would say four to five comfortably. I'm sure the poor little motor is going to be straining if you get more than five big frat guys in there. The car will definitely tell you when you're hauling passengers versus when you're just taking it out for a drive by yourself. Well, they can't weigh much. Probably a 1,500-pound car. They're very light. It's wood and metal. It doesn't have all the features and all the extra reinforcing that a modern car would have. It's just a wood carriage body covered in sheet metal and put on top of a light-duty frame. Does your car have a name? It does not, actually, because I only have one Model T. I just call it the Model T. I guess they used to call them the Tin Lizzie, and there was a lot of question about where that name came from. Yes, Tin Lizzie, yes. What did they do for gasoline back then? I mean, did they have gas stations like we have today? So they did. Early on, gasoline was one of the byproducts that would come about when trying to refine for kerosene, because everyone had kerosene and, and oil lamps. And gas was kind of just this byproduct that came through the refining process. They didn't really know what to do with. So they were already producing gasoline before they really had a big market for it. No kidding. So it's sort of like all dressed up and nowhere to go. We got this stuff. Now we have to figure out what we could use it for. Yeah, exactly. When refining first started, people mainly wanted kerosene. They were producing it, but you had to build up your gas station infrastructure. And you had the old glass pumps that people see in the small underground tanks. But that was definitely a major challenge. You have this car now, but now you need to build up this infrastructure to fuel it. What did they do for an electrical system? I know the original Model T's didn't have batteries at all. Now, I'm sure yours has got an electrical system in it. Is that right? Mine has a 
12-volt battery under the rear seat, and that basically just fires the four spark plug. When you're starting the car, I switch it to battery. But they also had a magneto. I think it's like an eight or nine volt magneto, which can generate its own electricity. I start the car on battery, and then once it's running, I switch it over to magneto, and the car is producing its own electricity. But the entire wiring harness is the wire that goes from the battery to the ignition switch, the four wires that go to the spark plugs. That is every mechanic's dream. Instead of trying to untangle a rat's nest of stuff, you work on some of these old Italian cars, and that harness is so snake bit. One wire starts out red, and it ends up being green. (laughs) The wires have, of course, all been replaced, but I don't think it's given me any electrical issues. One of the interesting things about the electrical system on this car is, where modern cars are actually coming full circle with this, is each spark plug has its own ignition coil. Instead of a single coil with a distributor, which distributes it out, in my case, there's four different ignition coils, each for its own spark plug, and they sit on the dashboard. That's positively modern. It's 21st century. Yeah, exactly. Now they have the coil packs now. They're going back to that for the spark plugs. So come full circle. And I actually had a coil go bad while I was driving. It was actually when I was on a tour with a bunch of Model Ts. The car just started running rough, and it didn't have the power. And one of the club members was like, oh, one of the coils went bad. That happens. Just switch it out and put in another one. They said, you can do that while driving, too. It's happened to us. Because it's right there on the dashboard. You just pop the coil out, pop a new one in, and keep going. Boy, what a whole different world. It's just so simple that things can go wrong, but the car will still run. It's a very forgiving car. I joke out of all my cars, it's the most reliable. That's great. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Curtis Saunders. Curtis, tell us your story and tell us about your car. My uncle bought a 1914 Ford Model T in 1968. It didn't run, so we would go and sit in it and play with it. We'd play with the levers and the pedals and the steering wheels. So I really, even from a young age, I grew up playing with this car that sat in the garage. And then when I was in high school, it was summer of 2004, my best friend Pete and I, Pete kept nagging me to get the car out. He said, you got this great car in your garage and your uncle has this car. You really need to get it out and drive it. So I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. And here we are, high school. We have learner's permits, so we're all excited. We got the car out and pushed it around the block to a garage where I could work on it. At first, we vacuumed it and cleaned it up. And then we had it pushed around the block and in the garage. And my uncle got home from work. And we were like, hey, look at this great thing. We're going to get it running. And he was all excited. He was like, oh, yeah, that's great. And so we spent a few days working on it. And then summer 2004, it finally fired right up. There's a plume of blue smoke that engulfed us. We had poured oil in the four (laughs) cylinders to try to keep everything lubricated as we were starting it. But of course, all this oil burned off as soon as it started running. So we were just engulfed in this plume of smoke as the thing started. What a great science experiment. I love it. You're a young guy. For anyone under 60 to have an interest in these cars is probably a bit of an anomaly. And I think that's fascinating. Clearly, the connection then was not just the mechanical one but maybe something a little more personal. Absolutely. I grew up hearing stories that my uncle told me when he had done work on it and he had driven it when he was younger. He drove it for about 10 years from 1968 to the late 70s before it was parked. So yeah, having this great car in my backyard and hearing all these fun stories about it from him and the work he did really piqued my interest. And then getting it running and then he and I would drive it and work on it and just kind of swap stories about the projects we were doing. Everybody jokes about what Henry Ford told his customers. You can have any color as long as it's black. Am I to assume yours is an old black model? Okay. 
It is an old black Model T, yes. They look good in that color. And let's talk about the car itself then and your restoration work. Obviously, you had to completely recommission this. How have you approached it? Is it more of a sympathetic restoration or is it a showroom deal or what was your approach? Out of necessity, when I first started working on it, I really didn't do body work. So doing a complete taking it apart and repainting, it was off the table. And it was also the paint was in pretty good shape from when it was restored. I really approached it as a mechanical restoration to do what I needed to to get the car to run safely and reliably but also keep it mostly original as I could. So I definitely haven't added a whole lot of features or upgrades to the car. I really wanted the car to be the technology it was in 1914. But at some point, you have to kind of make a guess as to what might have been on it. Is there such a thing as original engines in the Model T community? Or I guess the engines don't blow up, though. The engine is original, as I can say. The serial number on the block dates to July of 1914. And the body also has the components of a 1914. So I can say it's a 1914, but it's not like a modern car where you have a in on the engine block, which matches the frame. So they really can't go to that detail, but it is a part of the Model T community goes. It's a 1914 engine. When I was in high school, the other hobby I had was actually volunteering at some local state parks with old forts, like uh, Seacoast Defense Fortifications from the Civil War up through World War II. And so we would take the Model T to Fort Mott, New Jersey, and Pennsville, New Jersey, across the Delaware River. And we had World War I uniforms, of course, back in World War I. It would not probably have been uncommon to see a Model T driving around the fort. So it was just really popular for people too, because it just gave them another aspect of the history of the area to see the car running and driving and just moving all around. I have to plug one of my favorite places in the world, and that's the Henry Ford the museum in Dearborn, but especially Greenfield Village. And to visit Greenfield Village and understand what Henry Ford and his cohorts, Thomas Edison and all those guys, the Wright brothers, all the great inventors of the era did. And to be able to actually live it in a small town environment that was created in Greenfield Village, I would say that it's literally a Disneyland for kids and adults who are interested in American history and the invention of some of the fundamental machines and concepts that built America. I agree. That's on my bucket list. I have not been there, but I've read a lot about it. It was interesting. Ford built six brand new Model Ts. At least several of them are at that village that you can ride in. Those are some of the cars they use. They, they continued the assembly line and they got, I think, subsequent serial numbers after the last Model T and they built some brand new ones. I had no idea. It's one thing to see a car or learn about history in a museum or in a book, but it's entirely different to see it in like a working museum that's not just static where you see everything's coming to life. Talk about the community for a minute. As I pointed out, you're a, a pretty young guy to have such an old car. I know that Model Ts and Model As were all the collectible rage back in the 50s and 60s, and you don't see many of them around anymore. Where are they all lurking and who were the owners? You're right. There was a big rage back in the 50s, 60s that really launched a lot of the old car hobbies, but I think a lot of them are still around. They're just in garages. They might be in your neighbor's garage. I think one of the things that's become harder with Model Ts is as general cars get faster and roads get bigger, it's less and less safe to take them on main roads. I have to be very careful in planning routes. One of the benefits is I really like road cycling. I can kind of find similar routes for both of my hobbies. And then What's popular goes with different ages of people. As certain generations get older, they're attracted to certain cars. And I'm definitely, I think, an anomaly uh, as a 33-year-old really being into Model Ts. 
But I will tell you, though, my experience when I pull up to traffic lights, the Model Ts generally get more honks and waves than a Firebird or something. It's just people are just amazed to see it still on the road. What about rallies? Clubs get together and drive these things in mass? Absolutely. So there's national meets, there's local meets, there's local clubs where you go to a drive-in. There are all sorts of different levels of communities for people wanting to get involved. Growing up, I was involved in a Delaware Model T club. I went on some club tours with them, which was just a lot of fun to get a group of Model T owners together. And then, of course, you know, I've gone to some of the shows. Hershey is the big one in Pennsylvania. It's not too far away. I've been really happy with the different Model T communities that I've come across in the different states I've lived in. When I was growing up in Delaware, that was a really great way as a kid to see that there was other cars out there. And that really got me to the next level of driving it around a few blocks. The first tour I did with the club, it really got me more comfortable taking it on longer drives. I got to see that these guys are just taking them out. They're not worried. I know that the guys at Haggerty, the insurance group who publish some great magazines and have a lot of enthusiasts in their ranks, they had a program a couple of years ago where I guess one of their guys fixed and drove a Model T across the country. That was very inspiring. What's the furthest you've driven your car? The furthest I've driven the car is across state lines from Delaware to Maryland. I have trailered the car. I guess the furthest the car has been is Canada. When I was in graduate school at the University of Vermont, I had the car with me in Burlington and a few of my grad school friends and I, we got in the car and we drove it up to Canada. So we crossed the border. So the car has left the country. That was probably the first time in its 100 year history that it left the United States. We not only drove it across the border, we took it to a drive-through zoo. So we had the top down and there was camels, elk and ostriches that were coming into the car and you could feed them. So we had a giant bag of carrots and we were just feeding these animals just from this old Model T. And of course, everyone else, they have windows and there's like things to protect you from the animals. So they were just right in our laps. And it was the most insane thing to do with an old car. Oh, that's incredible. Those ostrich are pretty formidable. They can get in your face. They were a little aggressive. The camels loved us. They're just so heavy. I was like, one of these camels could just push this car right over if it wanted to. Like, is this really a good idea? (laughs) (laughs) Curtis, that's great. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcocom slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. I should have known you were a guy who didn't have just one car. Tell us about some of the other cars in your garage. Or should I call them antiques? They're both. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Once you have one car and you really get bit by the old car bug, it's hard to just stop with the one. Once I got the car running and we started enjoying it, my uncle was also really bit by the bug. So there's the 1914 Ford Model T. There is a 1930 Ford Model A. Ah, well, now the Model A, okay, stop right there. That was essentially its successor. Is that right? Yes, it was. And damn near as popular as the T. I know the Model A was sort of the staple up to probably up to World War II. You can really see the difference 
and the technologies even between those two cars. I think it really helps that I have an earlier brass era Model Ts because I have a lot of brass trim on the crank start and acetylene gas headlights. And then you progress to the Model A, which is electric start, electric headlights, electric horn. It's an enclosed car. It has four-wheel drum brakes. It has your standard transmission, the clutch pedal, brake pedal accelerator with your standard H3 speed and reverse transmissions, which is becoming much closer to what you would think of as a modern car. The sheet metal is a little more styled. It actually had a couple little curves in it if you look real hard. (laughs) It's true. It's true. We started rounding things over. What about the engine? What do those have? Similar inline four? Similar inline four, but we're at 40 horsepower now and a whole extra gear. (laughs) What color is your A? It's navy blue with black fenders and yellow wheels. I think the color is straw, so straw wheels. You're really styling. That's kind of like the Brooks Brothers of Model A. Sounds like a good look. Instead of brass trim, which has to be polished, it is stainless steel, so don't have to do anything at all. Well, so far, I'd call you a Ford man. What else you got? Also have a 1931 Buick. Jump ship to GM. The restoration is still in progress. I was working on that while I was in graduate school. It was a nice outlet from research to have a project like that to work on. I'll bet it was. That's nice to have a little bit of a distraction there, huh? Yes. And I'm fascinated by the 31 Buick because it has a straight eight engine. Double the number of cylinders, but they're all in a row, a straight eight. Straight eight was an engineering challenge because you've got that big, long crank and you've got a lot of temperature challenges, maintaining constant temperatures across such a long series of components. Of course, you get that good-looking long hood to go with it. It's a beautiful car. And it's a big enclosed car, too. It's a seven-passenger sedan. It'll be done someday. (laughs) I suspect that's not your last car, though. I also have a 1956 Ford Thunderbird. So again, with the Fords. (laughs) That's not only a modern car by comparison, but it's also quite a beautiful classic. And certainly among the T-Birds, that and the 5, 6, and 7, those are the three you want. Like maybe a 63. A lot of nice Thunderbirds out there. But certainly the first series were the ones that everybody really thinks about. I just love the look of it. It's a great looking car. What are your plans? You got any big drives ahead of you? The next big drive for the car will be at my wedding. I'm getting married this October and the Model T will be our wedding car. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Who needs a Rolls Royce convertible for a wedding limousine when you've got a Model T that you actually built yourself? That is fantastic. I'm sure your uncle would be thrilled. It's a great way to remember him and to really just continue to enjoy the car and have it continue to be a part of my life moving forward. Well, then I have to ask, is your fiance into cars? She loves it. She's driven it too. She thinks it's awesome. It was easy to teach her to drive it because she already knew the principle of the clutch and all that. That's fantastic. Well, if I ever get back east, I may look you up and hit you up for a driving lesson because I would be thrilled to get behind the wheel of something like that. It sounds like so much fun. Anytime. I always like to ask our guests, if you could have any three cars, what would you pick? That's a great question. I think definitely finishing the restorations is a top priority to really just get to kind of enjoy them and see that go full circle to finally get to the part of driving. I really just love old brass cars. The older, the better. I would love an old Stanley or Doble steam car. Okay, yeah. Also, the other one is an old brass car called an American Underslung. They look like a race. Well, they were. I just love the look. The best look in the world, huh? That's fantastic. And it's especially gratifying to know that the brass flame is alive with a whole younger generation of enthusiasts. What advice would you give somebody if they thought they wanted to do something as out there as go back in time and look for a brass era car? Would a Model T be the place to start? 
Absolutely. I would say Model T's or Model A's, but I definitely partial to the T's. In terms of antique cars, they're very available. There's a wealth of information and aftermarket parts available. If you need to find a part, you can pretty much buy most things new for these cars. There's enough of them where it's vendors can make new parts. So then the information is there. There's different clubs you can join. There's people that can help you if you get stuck. And I would just say, don't be afraid to try. I learned by doing. And when I started, I was just a high schooler and I had done some work on lawnmowers, but I I didn't know how to restore a car or how to work on things, but you take it apart. Sometimes you're smart enough to take pictures as you go. Sometimes you're not, and you have to go back to figure out how someone else put it together. But I would just say, don't be afraid to try. That's great. So just pretend it's a giant model kit and start from scratch. Exactly. If you get stuck, there's help along the way. Now, are you going to get thrown out of the club if you decide to paint one something other than black? (laughs) You may get some looks. but (laughs) Well, it keeps things easy, you know? You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear. Exactly. It's true. That's one less decision you have to make at the restoration process. So, Curtis, let's kind of change our perspective. Let me ask you, what do you think about the future of car collecting? It's a more accessible hobby than many people think. My Model T, it's not a million-dollar car. It's maybe like... $14,000. Not everyone has $14,000 laying around to go buy a car, but I would say that the future of the hobby, I think it's very, it's more accessible than many people think. There's plenty of collector cars, just pick up a Hemmings or some classified digest and you'll see that there's plenty that are within range. I think it's going to be really interesting for me as a 33 year old is seeing over the next 20, 30 years, the cars that I remember from my youth that are going to become collectible, much less. I've heard stories about other people talk about that, but I will definitely experience that. And it'll just be very interesting to see what will become collectible because there's always going to be things that are collectible and it's only like a brass era car isn't as collectible as it once was, there will certainly be new types of cars that are discovered and wanted people want to keep after. So I think that the future of the hobby is, I'm hoping it sticks around. I love it. It's been a great experience for me. And I think it'll stick around. I think that it'll just be fascinating to see what becomes collectible. But yeah, I would just encourage people, like I said, it's more accessible than you think. It doesn't have to be a show-winning restoration. You know, if it looks good from 10 feet away and you enjoy driving it, all the better. Even if it doesn't look good from 10 feet away, but you enjoy driving it. Probably have more fun that way anyway, because you don't have to worry about the rock chips. Exactly. It's funny, brand new cars become old cars eventually. And take it from me, time flies. And I remember buying some new cars that today are treasured classics. So it happens quickly. Talking about those future classics, do you think any car from the past hundred years will really have the same impact and significance as the Ford Model T? Anything else you can think of? It's hard to say for me, for sure. I think that there will. I think something will have an impact similar to the Model T. I mean, the Model T was just very unique in how it brought cars to the country and it gave the working person, it was the first car they could afford. It really put, put people on wheels. The next big shift would probably be an electric or some sort of alternative energy car. Of course, we already have cars, we already have roads, so it wouldn't be the same type of impact as the Model T. I certainly do think that there will be more cars that we'll look back on and we'll say that was the car that really launched this movement, this revolution. I mean, of course, Ford knew fairly early, 10 or so years in, that he was really onto something because he was cranking on a car every 90 seconds. It wasn't immediate. It took a while for it to really build up and build up. It might be more or like the propulsion technology, like I said, you know, electric or even self-driving. But there are definitely still shifts to come in the auto industry and in what we drive. And when we look back on it, we'll be able to say, okay, this is really what launched that movement. So I definitely think that it's going to be an exciting next century of cars. You know, as someone who loves driving, I'm kind of like, uh, but also as someone who sits in DC, Baltimore traffic every day, I'm kind of like, oh, well, it'd be nice to not have to drive. So. Well, that's what the T's for for the weekend. And the autonomous EV is for the day-to-day. Maybe it's the best of both worlds. And I hope we're all in enjoying both of those soon. I think it'll be really fascinating. I'm excited to live through this change and to really see what's 
next on the horizon. I think it's just an exciting time to be a car guy and to be interested in cars. What a great conversation. Dr. Curtis Saunders, I really want to thank you for joining us and taking time out of your busy mechanical engineering research work and to talk about something a little more down home, which is Model T that obviously has stolen a piece of your heart. This is a lot of fun coming here today, talking to you about the car. It's been great for me too. Well, all the best to you in your upcoming wedding and send us a picture, will you? Will do. Thanks to Curtis Saunders for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.